0: Church, My name is Adam Young, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so excited that you're here joining us as a church to worship, and also excited that you're here for week three of our series titled Broken Saviors, as we're taking a journey through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Now, apparently Trevor thinks I have too much scripture to cover today, but um, I think we'll manage to get through it all and still get out on time. Uh, do you ever believe it when a preacher says we'll get out on time? You probably should, but I really do think uh, we're going to make it today. But if we are, we're going to have to get started. And so I would love to invite you to follow along with us as we work through some of our selected passages in the book of Judges today. The greatest way for you to follow along is to use... The Bible app. Now, if you scan this QR code, if you already have the Bible app on your phone, this will just open the app up for you. If you don't have the Bible app on your phone, scanning this QR code will open up our event in just your web browser. So you don't have to have the app. Uh, You can scan this and still follow along with us. All the scriptures that we're going to cover and read will be laid out there for you, as well as ways that you can interact with our church. So if you're a guest with us, you can fill out the connection card. If you have a prayer request, there's a digital prayer request form in there. Uh, Parents, you can download and get access to our Parent Connection newsletter. That newsletter updates every week to correspond with the week's um, kids' Bible story that your kids are watching in the classrooms, but we also had it on uh, screen here for those kids who are sitting in with us this morning. And so we're going to jump into the book of Judges, and just as a way of review, for those of you who might have missed the first few weeks, we'll just catch you up. On what's going on. And so, what we have already seen so far in our study in Judges is that there is this cycle that is set on repeat throughout the entire book. And where we are in history is that God had promised his people, the Israelites, their own homeland. Formerly, they had sort of been wanderers and hopeless. They had been slaves in another country at one point. And God says, I'm going to bring you freedom and I'm going to take you to your own land that you can call home. But when you go into this land, what I need you to do is I need you to get rid of the people who are already living there. That was for two reasons. One, for their own spiritual protection. God said, listen, if you go in and you just move in next door to the people who are already there, You're going to be tempted um, by their worldviews, by their lifestyles, by their culture, by their belief systems and their religious practices and their gods. I don't want you to be tempted to go astray and to pursue these other things that are not what I designed for you. And so you need to get rid of them so that they won't be a temptation to you. And also because the people who live there have been doing some terribly evil things, And I'm going to use you to pass on my judgment for the evil and wicked things they've been doing. The Israelites didn't listen. They didn't obey God. And instead, they just moved in and started adopting the worldviews, the cultural practices, and the religions of their surrounding neighbors. And so we enter into this cycle where the people rebel against what God had commanded them to do. God gets angry about their disobedience their idolatry, and the evil practices that they started to do by adopting them from the surrounding peoples. Because they disobeyed God and he gets angry, um, instead of pushing out these people out of the land that he had promised to do, they disobeyed. So God allows these other nations to come and attack and oppress the Israelites. The people cry out because they're not happy about their situation. God hears them and He sends salvation through a judge. That's why we call the book uh, the book of Judges. Now, when we say judges, probably a better word would actually be deliverer, because you can't think of their judges like our judges today. Um, these were, in most ways, um, sort sort of uh, kingly warrior type leaders who would bring about deliverance and salvation for the nation. There'd be a period of peace, the judge or the deliverer would die, and then the people would go back to their old ways and practices. We'd start this cycle all over again. So we're going to start in Judges chapter three today, and we're going to look very quickly at the second judge. We looked at the first one last week. We're going to look at the second judge for just a few moments. We're going to go through uh, his story quickly. We're going to skip the third judge because they literally get one sentence. Like they were here, they delivered the people, and then they died. And then we move on. So we're just going to move on. Um, And then we're going to talk about the fourth judge also today. And so we're going to begin in Judges chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12 with our second judge. And verse 12 begins this way. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This, as we talked about for the last few weeks, is sort of a key transition phase that we see throughout the book of Judges to highlight when we have restarted the cycle that the Israelites had had peace and freedom, but then we start the cycle over because they got complacent and they started going back to their old ways and practices. And so we start this new cycle again, and the people of Israel did again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. So here God gets angry, and now he is going to allow their enemies and the surrounding nations to come and challenge them, to attack them, to oppress them, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Paul's. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So we get the setup for the story. Now there's a couple of points that I just want to make reference to. And one of them is the fact that what happens is when this foreign king, comes and attacks Israel, one of the things that he does is he takes possession of the city of Palms. Now, that's a vague historical reference that most of us would read right by and miss, but the city of Palms is actually a reference to the city of Jericho. Now, that may mean something to you, that may mean nothing to you, and that's okay, I'll explain. Jericho is the very first city that the Israelites took possession of when they came into this new promised land, this land that God had set aside for his people. For a few brief years, for a small, short season, the Israelites actually did obey God, actually did what he called them to do. Just over time, their excitement their passion for following the Lord sort of faded away, and they became complacent and decided to do what they wanted to do. But while they were still excited about following God and obeying him, they took the city of Jericho and Jericho stood as a symbol of what happens when you trust God, when you follow God, and when you're obedient to God and God is on your side. So for this city to fall was particularly heartbreaking. I'm sure you've felt this in life. You're going on about life and you're doing good things. It feels like you're making progress. You're moving in the right direction. And then something happens. And it feels like all the things you've worked for for weeks, months, years, maybe even decades, things that you've been working for and building up and growing, it, it feels like all the progress you made has been lost despite all your effort and your work and time, you're back to square one again. I'm guessing most of us in here have lived life long enough that we've experienced that. And how disheartening when you've worked for so long to feel like all progress is gone. And that's what the Israelites felt. I mean, this was the beginning and at least pointed back to a time when they had obeyed God, and then it was taken from them. And it felt like all the good that had been accomplished at one point was now worthless. They've gone back to step one. So God sends this left-handed ruler to come and bring deliverance. Now, Your Bible is divided into two major sections, the New and the Old Testament. The New Testament is written in response to the life of Jesus. The Old Testament is written in preparation for the life of Jesus. Your New Testament was written uh, in ancient Greek. Your Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew. And so this being in the Old Testament uh, was written in Hebrew. And the phrase that's used here that is translated delicately left-handed man Literally means unable to use his right hand. So Ehud was disabled. We don't know exactly to what extent, we don't know when or why this occurred. All we know is that he was unable to use his right hand, which in this time frame in history and in this culture and society meant that he was unavailable to be a soldier, to do anything. Uh, that would normally require some level of manual labor. But predominantly, he couldn't be a soldier. Because soldiers only carry their swords in their right hand. Even if you're naturally left-handed, your only option was to learn how to use a sword with your right hand. So Ehud was the kind of guy that everyone overlooked because he couldn't do what normal people could do. That's really what we're saying. Now, let me summarize his story as a deliverer judge quickly, and it's as strange as can be. So, what we see at the end here is the people of Israel send Ehud, right, with the tribute to this foreign king who's oppressing them. All right, this wasn't out of generosity, this was out of requirement. This foreign king was taxing the people, and they needed to send someone to go deliver their taxes to this foreign king. So they send the guy who can't do anything else because he can't carry a sword. He's going to go deliver the tribute. And here's what we find out, is that Ehud enters into the palace to deliver this tribute, to deliver these oppressive taxes to the king. And on him is strapped a dagger on his right thigh. Well, that's not a problem normally. Because a soldier's always going to carry their weapon on their left thigh. Because they've been trained how to use it right-handed. It wasn't too long of a sword. It was more like a dagger. And the guards never even thought to check his right thigh. They only checked his left thigh. So they let him in. So he delivers this tribute. And then he says, oh, king, by the way, I have a secret I want to tell you but no one else can hear. So the king is like, fine. Everyone get out. So they do. So Ehud moves in to whisper his secret. He pulls his dagger off the right thigh and stabs the king in the stomach. And in a very grotesque way, we're told that he's disemboweled. So Ehud leaves. He locks the door behind him. So his... The king's servants can't get in the door, and so the king's servants are just waiting for a while. And because the king had been disemboweled, he started smelling something, and his servants actually start saying to each other, "Let's just stay out here. He's obviously in the bathroom." And so they wait, and they wait. It actually, says they wait to the point of embarrassment. They're like, "Okay, king. Like, at this point, you're just avoiding the kids, right?" Wives, have you ever said that about your husband? Like, come on. All right? So like, okay, this is ridiculous. They break in and they find their king dead. But what had happened in the meantime is while they were waiting, Ehud had run to the army and said, It's time. The Lord has given this nation into our hands. Let's go. And before the Moabites could even prepare for what had happened or what was coming, the Israelites marched in and defeated them. And we read about that at the end of Ehud's story in verse 30. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Kind of an odd story, isn't it? Oh, just wait, because our next one gets even crazier. All right, so let's move on to our next one. We're going to go to chapter 4 and we'll begin the new cycle for a new judge. Look how verse one begins. And the people of Israel, after having that 80 years of peace, remember, and the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. We have started the cycle again. Have you ever been there? Like you finally overcome a temptation or a sin that's just been dragging you down, or you feel like there's been a barrier in your life that you finally overcome, you worked so hard for, then you start to get complacent. Before you realize it, you're right back to where you started. That's what we see here. So here Israel is again back in the same place. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth Haggai. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel came up to her for judgment, or what well, maybe a better way to translate that would be came to her for wisdom, for her judgment over their issues. So we get a twist in the story. Because now we have this prophetess, this woman whose role is to preach and teach God's word and to lead people to lead the nation by her wisdom and her character. Deborah's different than our past judges to this point because she doesn't lead by sheer might. She leads by wisdom, by truth, and by character. Where Othniel, who was our first judge that we talked about last week, went to war leading thousands of soldiers, wow, uh, soldiers, And Ehud made an assassination attempt. Deborah counseled and guided the people. And so really, Deborah comes the closest to being a picture of a godly leader uh, for the people of Israel instead of just a military general. So let me summarize parts of Deborah's story, and then we'll pick it up here in a few more verses. So Deborah uh, gets a word from the Lord after 20 years, that it's time to go fight this king uh, who had oppressed them. So she goes to Barak, who is the leader of her army, the nation's army. She said, it's time to go to war. And Barak actually tells her, I'm not going unless you go with me. Um, Not to fight. He was not expecting Deborah to fight, but because he trusted her so much. This just tells us how much the people loved and admired Deborah for her wisdom and her leadership. He knew that Deborah was a woman who heard from the Lord that her words could be trusted and her wisdom and her character could be trusted. So he said, I'm not going unless you go. So Deborah's like, fine, uh, then I'll walk alongside you. I'll I'll be there to help. And so what we see is Sisera, who is the commander of the enemy's army, um, goes to into battle, and through God's providence, he essentially stops this foreign army. Sisera gets down and actually tells us that he runs on foot away from the battle, abandoning his army, his men, and his chariots. So Sisera takes off. He flees battle. And as he's running, he comes up to uh, an encampment Uh, This encampment is one from a guy named Heber uh, and his wife, J.L. So, Cicero runs to their encampment, but uh, Heber's not home. J.L., his wife, is the only one there. Now, here's why he runs to this particular encampment. This is the only safe place he thinks he can go. He runs there because um, Heber actually ethnically is connected to the Jewish people, even though he's not a part of Israel. Yet he's also friendly with all the other nations and kingdoms within this region. And so so Haber and his group are sort of like this great place where like, okay, you're kind of friends with everyone, so maybe you can talk everyone down. The Israelites want to kill me because I'm their enemy. My own king will now want to kill me because I just ran from battle. As the commander of the army, I just fled. So this is the only place I can go. Well, Hebert wasn't home, but his wife, J.L., was. J.L. says, come on. Come on in. If you need a place to stay, you can stay here. Then we're going to pick up this story. As promised, it gets crazy. J.L. came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a drink. Uh, Please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here say no? But Jael, the wife of Heber, Took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep for weariness. And so he died. If there were ever an unnecessary sentence in the Bible. I think that last <laughs> one <laughs> seems a little unnecessary, but in case you were curious, he doesn't survive this. <laughs> Now, here's what's interesting: um, setting down and taking, setting up and taking down tents uh, at this time frame and in this culture was the woman's job. So, J.L. was using the tools that she had and what she was familiar with to take care of business. Now, here's what we have in chapter four, which is what we've been going through. In chapter four, we have a historical account of the events that occurred this day in history. These historical accounts accounts include the day in which a woman leads the nation in wisdom, in truth, and in courage, and in which a woman does what no man at the time could do. Chapter 5 is a theological reflection on this day in history. So we have both the historical account and then a theological reflection on the significance of this story. Now, there are a lot of really important points made, not only historically, but theologically in chapter five, that, unfortunately, we just don't have time to cover them all. Trevor really would have been mad if I would include all of chapter five in the list. There are a few that I want to point out. Chapter five is a song or a poem written by Deborah reflecting on God's faithfulness and his victory. In this moment, one of the points that we're gonna make uh, just fits with the overarching theme of Ehud's story and Deborah's story. And then one of them is just, I think, something that's terribly important for us to recognize and to point out, and will also, I think, help explain why some of these very odd and sometimes very violent stories are in the Bible. Because the reality is, it's, it's kind of weird that these stories are in the Bible. These aren't the ones that we learn about in cute videos when we're children in children's church. So why in the world are they there? Aside from the fact that they're historical events that actually took place. Here's one that I think is worthy of mention. And I think we'll just put some things in perspective. So in chapter 5, we start in verse 28. Um, so this is Deborah writing. Deborah is going to begin imagining what Sisera, what his mom and his mistresses back home might be thinking. So it says, out of the window she peered, the mother of Cicero wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself. So they're going, Deborah's imagining his mo- uh, sister's mom and, and some of the other ladies back at home wondering, what's taking sister so long? Why has he not come home from battle yet? Verse 30, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every So the word translated womb here in Hebrew is a gentle way of putting it. But this Hebrew word carries um, harsh undertones to it. One way that would be appropriate um, to translate this would be girl slave, a girl slave or two for every Cicero was a man who had a reputation, was known throughout both his nation and other nations as a man who had built a habit, was well known of capturing girls in war to make them sex slaves. This man had devoted much of his career and power to abusing and enslaving and raping other women. And God used two women to end the hellish nightmares he had created for others. So we said earlier that God commanded his people to go into this land and to get rid of the inhabitants for two reasons. One, to protect their own spiritual uh, health, because God knew if they didn't, that they would be tempted to adopt worldviews and practices of other nations. And he didn't want that. He wanted them to stay focused on what he had called them to do and who he called them to be. And also because God wanted to pass on his judgment for the evil and the wickedness of some of these other nations. Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine a loving God who would approve of something so terrible and brutal like war. What we recognize is God bringing about his justice for evil deeds. And what Sisera got... Was nothing compared to what he created and caused for others. Countless others. And so God, in his judgment and justice, used two women to end this terrible nightmare that he had created for so many others. And so war is always bad, it's always tough, it's always ugly. God, God's justice will prevail in the end. And so these stories are hard to stomach sometimes. We have to recognize that God is never not at work. And he is sovereign. And here's another point that I want to make that fits in with the story of Deborah and Eve. So another thing that Deborah says in her song, she says, Curse Morose says the angel of the Lord, cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So here Deborah calls out a certain community for their sin and rebellion. But here notice that the accusation against them isn't for idolatry, it's not for wickedness, it's not for evil actions, for war, for murder, for rape. The great accusation against them is the fact that they did nothing. Their great sin was sitting on the sidelines. Ehud was handicapped. Because of what we know about the culture in this time frame, he would have been despised and in many ways rejected by society. His right hand was broken, and so he had every excuse to sit on the sidelines, to not fight. Deborah was a woman who didn't fit any of the normal categories that her society said was necessary for leadership, for influence, for effectiveness. She had every excuse to sit on the sidelines and let a man do the job that everyone expected a man would and should do. Ehud and Deborah had every excuse in the world to sit on the sidelines. But instead, they used what they had, what they knew, And they took action. Here Deborah calls out the great sin of this community for doing nothing. For just sitting on the sidelines. Maybe as we reflect back on this 3,000 year old story, this is the point where it becomes real for you. In what way have you been sitting on the sidelines in your life? with every excuse as to why you don't need to do this or why you don't have to take responsibility. Sometimes we look at ourselves and say, well, we're not bad because we don't commit all those really terrible sins. Can't accuse me of idolatry and war and murder and evil and wickedness. And maybe that's true. I hope it's true but maybe our great sin is just inactivity. Making excuses of why we should be allowed to sit on the sidelines. Because we don't fit the stereotype of what a spiritual leader should be. Because we don't think we have all the qualifications that other people expect of someone like that. Look at what Paul says to his church in the New Testament reflecting on the kind of people that were in his church, he says, for consider your calling brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't want your ability. He wants your availability. God's specialty is taking people who aren't, who can't, who don't have, and using them for mighty things, because when God does that, He's the one who gets the glory and the praise and the honor and the recognition. God doesn't want your ability. He's interested in your availability. God is not limited by whatever disabilities you think holds you back. God is not concerned with what other people think you should or shouldn't do. God doesn't want your ability he just wants your availability. Look at something else that Paul says to reflect on this reality. And here in 2 Corinthians 12 Paul is reflecting on his own weaknesses. Not his strengths, but his weaknesses. And in that moment of wrestling and reflecting on his strengths, I mean on his weaknesses, This is what God says to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul recognized that in our weaknesses, God's strength shines the brightest. And he says, then I'll boast in my weaknesses, because that means those are the places where God will shine the most brightly. doesn't need your ability what he wants is your availability will you make yourself available for him to use you we talk about the most unlikely of leaders and heroes ehud and deborah would fit that bill but no one fit that bill more than jesus isaiah 53 look at how jesus is described here Born into controversy, born in a manger, with no appearance that would impress anyone or make anyone do a double take, despised and rejected by all. Jesus was the ultimate hero who no one saw. Jesus, more than anyone, knows what it's like to make yourself available to be used by God. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs. And Jesus did it for you. He laid down his life for you. To serve you. To love you. To deliver you is the greatest deliverer, more than any judge in the stories we read in this series. Jesus delivered us, not from a physical enemy, but an internal one. One that eats away at us from the inside. One that no matter what we do, we don't have the power to defeat or overcome. He came to defeat sin so that we no longer have to be enslaved by it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the time that we have to come and be in your presence. And just to be reminded in the stories of others, Lord, that our limitations are not limitations to you. That you specialize in taking our brokenness, our weakness, our disabilities, and the low expectations others have of us, you specialize in taking those and doing something great with them. So Lord, we're here to say we're available. We don't have all the answers, all the ability. We doubt ourselves and are insecure, but we just, we're here to say we're available. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. I want to actually finish reading from Isaiah 53. I read two verses. I want to read a couple talking about Jesus and after saying that Jesus was despised and we didn't esteem him verse 4 goes on to say surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us Peace And with his wounds, we are healed by dying on the cross. Jesus provided a solution to the problem of our separation from our holy creator. He was crushed. He was punished for our sin and our rebellion. And it is through the wounds he took on on the cross that we find healing. Goes on to say, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus paid the ultimate price for you so that you could be delivered, you could be redeemed. And that is why we worship. That is why we celebrate. It is why Jesus is worthy of our lives. So in this moment, would you give him yours? Would you say to him, I'm available and I'm yours? Bold me, shape me, use me for your will. Lord, thank you for this moment that we have. The only prayer, the only thing we can offer to you is a willing heart. Lord, would you use us? We give you our availability. We give you our minds, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives. Would you use us?